Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 13 The Right to Live Talking with the elves was easier said than done. Hermione had read that a house-elf would notice when their master was calling, even across great distances, but most of the elves in Britain didn't have a master. The rest were bound to Hogwarts, and she didn't want to find that, somehow, she counted as an elf's master. That revelation would bother her in too many ways. Be that as it may, Hermione had to find some way to speak with them, at least to schedule a meeting if they were open to one, and as fortune would have it, the Hufflepuff quarters were next to the kitchens. At breakfast, Ginny explained how to get access, and assured her that the elves really wouldn't mind a drop-in. Hermione spent the rest of her morning meal idly picking at mushroom crepes, and picking out the bits that had been bewitched to scream as she chewed them, and wondering when she ought to visit. Immediately after breakfast, they would be cleaning up, wouldn't they? But if she waited too long, they would be preparing for the next meal, or maybe cleaning, or— When did the kitchen elves go to bed? Hermione must have been staring into her crepes for too long, because Fleur guessed at her thoughts, hence told her not to worry about it too much. Elves were reasoning beings, Fleur pointed out, and Hermione could just ask if now was a good time. So she headed down the stairs immediately after breakfast, in the hour or so that she had before History of Magic. When she got there, Hermione tickled the pear exactly as Ginny had instructed her. After it turned into a handle, she pulled it open and stepped through into a vast chamber, brightly lit and gleaming with brass and silver pots and tools, and filled with steam and the smell of soap and baking grease. The kitchen was an odd reflection of the great hall, not its mirror image, but noticeably reminiscent. The two rooms were exactly the same size for one, just not in length and breadth, but in the way that each ceiling loomed. The great halls as the vast open sky and the kitchens as a celestial firmament of quartz and granite. In the center of the kitchen were five tables, exactly the same as those which could be found in the great hall and in the same positions. At the very far end was a huge fireplace, roaring with many mouths, and between her and that fireplace was a bustling crowd of elves. Most were dressed in a bizarre and bright assortment of colors, while every fourth or fifth elf was attired in simpler garb pillowcases, thick cheesecloths, and carefully tied tea-towels among them. One of the closest elves lit up upon seeing her, and several abandoned their work, cleaning pots, sorting food scraps for compost or animal field, or sweeping to gather near her. "'Is Miss Granger needing something?' asked one of the closest elves. He was stockier than most of the other elves, and dressed in a washed-out tunic, which was two sizes too big for him, and tied tight with a vivid yellow belt. "'You know my name?' "'Were you knowing the name of all the students of Hogwarts, miss?' Hermione tried not to frown, and covered it with a neutral expression almost as soon as her mouth twisted. But it was not done soon enough for the elves. "'We are not poking, Miss Granger, we promise,' said a skinny elf girl as she toted a linen bag full of vegetable scraps. It was clear what the elves had meant, but still, just to try to prove herself wrong, Hermione asked, "'Do you know the names of the other students from Bibbit's Hall?' "'Only by chance, miss.' "'Because I'm a Hogwarts student, and they're not,' Hermione said, trying to sound neutral about the matter. The elves nodded. "'Miss Granger, you was not liking being a Hogwarts student, is you?' asked the elf in the tunic. Hermione sighed. "'How could you tell?' "'Because I'm having eyes,' 
the elf said with an amused tone. And then, to the gasping horror of quite a few of the other elves, he poked Hermione very softly in the face with a thin finger. And this is saying it. Well, it's not what I had planned, Hermione said, while inside the probable safety of her mind could an elf practice vigilancy. She wondered at the fact that the elves had picked up on the cause of her discomfort. Had they, despite the protestation that they weren't poking, been more watchful than they were implying, or were they merely very perceptive? It's all right that I'm here, isn't it? The elves are often visiting the kitchens, miss. Only yesterday there were Weasleys and Miss Black and Mr. Polyakov and Miss Greengrass. Dmitri, flushed face, black hair, stumbling all over the place and always drinking. The elf nodded. Mr. Polyakov is often visiting the kitchen, miss. Really? Oh, yes. He is most full of questions about how we are doing things. Only last night he was asking again how the meals go up from the kitchen to the great hall. The elf pointed at the five tables which had been placed in imitation of the five that stood above them. It's a lot like the switching spell, isn't it? Hermione mused. Except that you're switching the entire object and switching it with air. Except switching spells are still transfiguration and the food is definitely edible. Another option occurred to Hermione as she spoke, though it defied belief to think that the house elves would resort to such a complicated means when they could simply apparate into the great hall food in tow and provide it that way. Is it a Farfairy's enchantment? Perhaps it had been applied to the tables in some way, though the spell did not, as far as Hermione knew, permit the enchanted object to move some other object. If that is how you call it, the elf answered, we put them into nothing, and then they are taken out from nothing. Taken by who? The elf paid her a quizzical look. By nothing, miss. Did that mean that there actually wasn't anything that handled the retrieval or recreation or however it worked, or that the same thing, or same nothing, as it were, which the food was put into, also handled the other half of the process as pushing the food out? Hermione opened her mouth to ask, then realized she was sidetracking herself. I had some questions. Not about magic or the food, I mean, but other things— and I was wondering if you had the time to answer them. We are always having time for the students. Okay, but do you... Hermione caught herself before she asked whether they really had time. No matter what their state was, they were sure to find that insulting. If there is a better time at all, then I can always come back then. Now is being fine, miss. All right. Is it okay if I sit? Hermione asked, not wanting to loom over them so much. After settling down on a cushion, unasked for, but hastily provided nonetheless, she continued. I came down here because I learned some things about elves, and I wanted to hear how you felt about it. Then you must be asking questions, the elf replied, and he smiled, while a few of the others sighed. I was wondering— Hermione took a breath to gather her nerves. Do you like being free? The crowd that had gathered around her now stilled— and the number of the elves now regarded her with obvious wariness. Almost at once the kitchen turned quiet, and the silence was disturbed only by the momentary clatter of some plates in a distant sink. Why is Miss asking? Well, it seemed like something that had been forced on you, but I realized that I hadn't gotten your perspective on things. Crabbers, masters, would be feeling her only the leavings, or nothing when the meal was not to their liking, and ordered her to beat herself with the candlestick when they were aboard, said a different elf, who wore a long, checkered sock around her neck, not unlike a tie, 
and two different kinds of slippers. When Krubby blinked, one eyelid moved only a little, and the space around that eye was off-color from the rest of her face. It is good to be free. But some of you still aren't. All of us is treated as free, even if some do not wear clothes. Freedom is meaning wearing what we want, is it not? So some of us is wanting to wear what we have always worn. Krubby smiled, but the expression didn't reach all the way to her eyes. Krubby is lacking clothes. So you are all free? We are what we are needing to be, Krubby answered. And her smile grew genuine. Did I miss it well this morning? We can be getting you more if you are wanting. There are toast roll-ups and buttered radishes, and it is not too early for lunch if you are wanting something more than that. I'm quite fine, thank you, Hermione replied. Even as the elf in the oversized tunic put a warm chocolate croissant in her left hand. I heard that some of you were that some of you disagreed very strongly, and, as Hermione continued, a number of the elves returned to their work with exaggerated focus, some folding down their ears as they did. Is there anything that you wish was different about how things are here? Miss Grandel should be having an early lunch with her friends, said another elf, in a shirt that reached all the way to her knees, and whose sleeves had been rolled back several times. Hermione found her right hand quite suddenly occupied with the handle of a cloth-covered wicker basket. "'Tibbs has packed the strawberry eclairs, which Tibbs is knowing you like very much,' the elf said. "'You're best for going, miss.' "'I suppose I ought to,' Hermione said at last, feeling not a little unsettled, and the kitchen elves looked at her expectantly until Hermione finally stood and departed. History of magic was as unpleasant as always.' Carl lectured on the statute of secrecy and the common bond of magic, which made all beings cousins to each other, whether witch or goblin, hag or wizard, but at the same time, Hermione had to keep a close eye on all her things, lest one of her classmates mark up a page of notes or abscond with a textbook. Despite these distractions, thoughts of her visit to the house cells remained with Hermione all through class and into lunch, when Fleur was able to see on her face just how well things had gone. I take it the old conversation was not all you had hoped it would be. It could have been more productive, Hermione admitted. I don't like how they reacted. That was all for a few minutes. But Hermione's appetite failed to rouse itself at the sight of onion soup and tatty scones, and what few embers of hunger burned inside her were dampened completely when she wondered whether it was a coincidence that, as far as she could reach in either direction, the table had only those dishes which she most enjoyed. Hermione stared at what she had doled out onto her plate, until at last she sighed and put aside her spoon. Finally, Fleur set down a lamb's rib and turned to Hermione. "'What did the elves say?' she asked. "'It was very odd. They said that I was welcome there, and maybe I was, but they definitely didn't like that I was asking about how they had been freed, and I don't like that they didn't like it.' Hermione fell silent for a moment. I don't know how I should feel about it, but I feel wrong. Are you talking about the elves? Draco broke in, despite that Hermione and Fleur had been speaking in French. There haven't been any retirements for years, you know, and skipping supper isn't going to help any of the retired elves. You're only going to offend the elves that are still working. I know that it's still complicated, Hermione said, and then, as realization caught up to her, You know French? My grandmother taught me, Draco said, but look— they probably just didn't like the subject matter. I probably wouldn't be happy if you came into the common room and started asking about my family history. Hermione nodded. 
I just need some time to figure things out, she said in English. I will not permit you to starve yourself in the meantime, Fleur said. I know, Hermione said. And she took up her fork again and forced herself to eat, even if the tatty scone tasted like ashes in her mouth. Fleur was satisfied, however, and after a few minutes the conversation turned to a problem in Fleur's arithmetic homework, which, though a bit above Hermione's level, she was still pleased to talk about. For dinner, Hermione ate what she could scrounge up from the carriage, but that wasn't a sustainable strategy. Shortly after, she talked it over with Fleur and decided to go down to Hogsmeade for food the next day, but that presented a different issue. She was going to have to pay for it somehow, because not even a brilliant witch like Fleur or Professor McGonagall could transfigure food, real edible food, and even if someone could, people would want to charge for the labor that was invested in that miracle. All she had was muggle money, some francs she hadn't yet spent on books, and a few hundred kroner that Hermione had been given as part of an early birthday present, so she could buy a book or two in Norway and some silver molnir, what wizards used in France, and there were still a few issues that the wizengammon had to work out before a bureau de change could be set up. Draco, however, was fascinated by the bills, and more than willing to make a trade. "'Don't think that it's charity, Hermione. I'll keep a couple of these banknotes for myself,' he said, actually miming the quotation marks. "'But I'm sure I could find someone else who'd like to take the rest off my hands.' "'He means that he's going to sell them at a top galleon rate,' Neville said, elbowing Draco playfully. "'You're not taking advantage of some poor foreigner who doesn't know any better, are you?' Hermione asked. But she smiled as she said it. "'Well, maybe a little,' Draco said. And he bit down experimentally on a one hundred kroner note. "'That's a funny sort of paper they have. These and these.' Draco waved some blue fifty-franc notes in his other hand. "'Are from different countries,' you said. "'Does all Muggle have portraits on it, and is it also colourful? "'Most of it,' Hermione replied. "'Muggles use coins, too, but that's heavier and not as useful.' "'She can't use the coins as bookmarks,' Flair said, smiling. Draco held a twenty-franc against the illumination of a nearby torch, and marveled at how the light played across its coward hatching. "'It's like a little painting. "'Who is this one, anyway?' "'Uh... Claude Debussy, I think, Hermione said after a moment's thought. He is a painter, one of the Impressionists. Did he paint this? Draco asked as he waggled the banknote between his fingers. I don't think so. Muggle money usually depicts people who have been dead for a long time. Paying for things with portraits of dead people. Merlin, but the Muggles are so morbid, aren't they? He said, finally taking his eyes away from the note for a moment to glance at Hermione. He looks so odd, standing perfectly still like that. It's as though even the portrait is dead. Muggles don't make moving portraits, Hermione said, and Draco rolled his eyes. I know that, Hermione. I might be wizard-born, but I'm not an inbred. Our family tree is plenty mixed, you know, Draco added with a touch of defensiveness. And do you want to buy any of these? Oh, hey, here we go. Hermione extended a pouch of French Molny. Draco shook his head and frowned apologetically. Muggle money is just some funny-looking paper. But those coins are money, and I don't want to cause any trouble for my mother. Gringotts might get the wrong idea if I was trading on money for yours, Draco added, while Hermione put the pouch away. She didn't need to exchange it anyway. Even if Draco really was ripping her off, Hermione had still gotten enough money for the next few weeks, and that was plenty of time to figure out something else. Hermione went to talk with Fleur shortly after she was finished with Draco. She had never been to Hogsmeade, and neither had Fleur, and Hermione thought she would like the company. I was thinking of going down to a place called Madame Puddifitz. Draco told me that they serve coffee there, Hermione said. Would you like to come? 
It had been a long time, too, since she had been able to spend time just with Fleur, and not also to have to juggle her friends in Hufflepuff, or Victor and Dimitri, or the entire rest of the contingent from Beaubaton. They left early the next morning. It took roughly twenty minutes to walk down from the castle to Hogsmeade. About half that time was needed to get to the gate at the edge of Hogwarts grounds, and for a moment Hermione wondered whether they would be intercepted, or even find the gate magically locked. But it opened almost at the touch of her hands, and glid back into place without her help after she and Fleur passed through. There were any number of explanations, but it still left her uneasy. Was it normally unlocked, or had Riddle intervened? It felt like high-grade paranoia to suspect that Riddle was going around secretly unlocking gates to let her into Hogsmeade for purposes unknown, but then again he'd secreted letters into her food. They turned left, down the carriage path that led to Hogsmeade, and roughly parallel to one of the little tributaries that fed into a stream called Watery Burn. Everything on one side, more or less north of Watery Burn, belonged to Upper Hogsmeade, and it was but a couple of minutes before Hermione and Fleur were flanked on either side by dour, long-faced buildings that seemed more like funeral homes than houses for the living. The windows were mostly covered by heavy curtains, and the walls were made from stone. The gardens were green, brown, and gray together. Here and there, skeletal beanstalks and the dry remains of other summer or early autumn harvests— and in their midst kale and wood hedgehogs and winter celery and other such things that cared little for the Scottish autumn chill. In this part of the village is mostly the quarter of vampires and hags. Some werewolves too, but there are many others out there, Fleur said. And she pointed south and west to the Black Mountains, in whose shadow Hogsmeade lay, and the foothills that knelt before them. Helding has been a good trait for a long time because he let werewolves keep distance from other witches and wizards without arousing suspicion. Not that they do not have to conceal themselves, it is still the closest thing that British werewolves have to a traditional occupation, and many others have taken it up. Hermione nodded, accepting the trivia eagerly. Werewolf studies was a practical subject and said very little that could be considered sociological, and Hermione had still not read the book which Professor Lupin had gotten her and she could not help but feel guilty in the wake of realizing how much time she had allowed to pass since then. They reached Madame Puddyfoot's not too long after that. It was gaudy and frilly inside and out, and the windows were translucently speckled, but Hermione was here for coffee and breakfast, and she knew that the content of a book could rarely be judged well by its cover. The tea shop was empty except for a pair of old wizards sitting in the corner, with six mostly empty cups on the table between them and an amber-stemmed billiard pipe for each. As a stout witch came from out the back, one wizard filled up his rune-engraved bogwood pipe bowl with shredded tea leaves and lightly tapped down on them with his index finger. "'Is it an Hogwarts weekend already?' the woman asked. "'I wasn't expecting any of you to come down for a couple more weeks.' "'No, we're from Bobbiton, Hermione said. "'We're visiting for the tournament, and we wanted to come down to Hogsmeade and explore a little.' "'Oh, is that right?' "'Thank Merlin, I was sure it was still Thursday,' she said. Though Hermione herself was quite sure it was actually Wednesday. Well, your English is mighty fine, dear. Now what'll you be having? We heard that this shop had the best coffee in Hogsmeade, Hermione said. And the woman smiled broadly. If there's better, nobody's told me yet. They ordered two coffees and a plate of round, flat scones with sour strawberry jam and clotted cream on the side. Madame Puddyfoot also provided them with milk, which Fleur used a little of, and a bowl of sugar, which neither of them touched. Hermione had still not had a better cup of coffee than what was available at Beaubaton, but what passed for espresso at Madame Puddyfoot's was easily the best that she'd had since coming to Britain. The first few minutes passed in companionable silence, 
It was nice just to be here and to have the time with Fleur, and there was no need to say anything. Her thoughts ran, her mind wandered, and because there was no need to not say anything either, she eventually spoke up. "'I wonder what's available at Durnstrang,' Hermione mused. "'And how it stands up against this. "'Victor said that there's a village nearby, "'and I think they drink coffee too in Norway, Denmark.' "'Hm.' "'Fleur looked as if she'd drunk something vile, "'but before Hermione could inquire after it, she said, "'I had known that there was some self-segregation in Hogsmeade, "'but it is different to see it as we walked down here. "'I wonder how much of it is intentional. "'What do you mean?' Before things changed in Britain, most of the housing in Oxmith was on this side of Watery Burn, on the south, Fleur explained. There hasn't been much emigration, and most of the construction since then has been on the side facing Hogwarts in Upper Oxmith. So if most of the non-humans living here are newcomers, it stands to reason that they would just happen to settle over there. But are the houses on that side because non-humans were settling in Oxmith, or... Did they settle there because that was the most convenient location to build? Hermione thought for a moment. There are a couple thousand people in Hogsmeade, aren't there? Two and a half thousand, Fleur said. Not counting the student population, which is also considered a part of Upper Hogsmeade. You've said that before, Upper Hogsmeade. I mean, it isn't just a geographical thing, or Hogwarts wouldn't be included. Lower Hogsmeade is everything south of Watery Bone and Upper Hogsmeade is the rest, and goes up to Hogwarts. It has something to do with representatives in the Wizen... Wizen... Wizencamot? Yes, precisely, Fleur said, nodding. I don't know exactly how it works. That isn't what I have been reading about, but most humans live in Upper Hogsmeade, is what I was told. Apparently they make up a considerable fraction of the voting populace there, and that, too, may be a contributing factor. Or, on the other hand, just an accidental result of other processes. At any rate, what I was getting at is that they'll probably have a public library or something like that in a village of this size, or some other place that'll have records for you to pore over, Hermione said. Could make an arithmetic project of it. I could, Fleur said. And they soon fell into silence again, sipping coffee and eating the rest of their breakfast. Eventually, Hermione set some British money on the table to pay for their meal and stood. I think I'm going to explore the village a little before I go back. "'May I accompany you?' "'Are you sure that you have time?' "'I have plenty of it,' Fleur said. Hermione wasn't so sure of that. In fact, she was pretty certain that Fleur had a class coming up soon. But Fleur presumably knew that as well, and was making an active decision. If she kept making that decision, well, maybe Hermione would have to intervene at that point. But their first visit to Hogsmeade was probably a premature occasion to be considering such measures.' Still, though, Hermione had to voice some concerns about where Fleur intended to go. Honeydukes, really? We were not all raised by dentists. There was a saying about children in candy shops, but Hermione had only ever been able to understand it by way of inference, because she had never been to a candy store before. At Honeydukes, from wall to wall, floor to ceiling, there were shelves of sweets. Candied sanguineos. New from Hispanapule. Fudge flies. Ice mice. Sapphire chocolate, several varieties of tooth-rotting amphibian, and, behind the counter, bottles of chocolate scotch. It felt a little uncomfortable just to be here, and that discomfort grew when Hermione thought of getting something for Miranda, surely there must be sugar-free stock somewhere in the store, and realized that this surely would be a bad idea, on account of Scandinavian wizarding schools and their attendant villages probably not selling candy with English labels. 
Some of the candies appeared to have gobbledygook, too, but Hermione doubted she would be able to pass off those strange glyphs as Futhark runes, let alone anything more modern. Well, perhaps she could repackage them in something more appropriate. One day her parents were going to see something that really did come from Scandinavia, and they'd probably have scrapbooked anything that Hermione sent to them from her trip to definitely not Britain. Hermione couldn't risk using the original packaging, but she had a plan for that. For Miranda, Hermione picked up a box each of tooth-flossing string mints and shako-chalk, and for her sister's budding dark tastes, she also grabbed a couple of blunt-flavored lollipops and Fleur-look roses, Hermione said, almost pulling Fleur into the other side of the store. Look here, Hermione said, and she pointed at the display beside them. You could actually plant these, and they grow like real plants. An enchantment like that must have been tricky to pull off, and just one of the confectionery flowers would eat a week of Hermione's funds, but it was worth the price. She would stretch her budget a little further, and she'd have at least a month to figure out another alternative. Because they were inside a locked glass case, Hermione had to fetch a clerk to retrieve one. Which cultivar? he asked. After a moment, Hermione was able to force out an answer. Milk chocolate, she said remembering Fleur's preference and reminding herself that it wasn't her own teeth that would suffer. The clerk took out a chocolate rose, placed it in a thin faux crystal case for safekeeping, and carefully handed it to Hermione. She made a follow-up inquiry for extra packaging. "'I want to send something to my sister, but I don't want to give away what something is until she's opened the box. Do you have anything that'll keep the sweets fresh until then?' And then paid for her goods. Hermione didn't have to wait too long for Fleur to finish up and then the pair of them were off to the next stop on their itinerary. Gripping a hand and gripping a hand resellers was to both their liking, except that it was rather small. Fleur had seen bigger bookshops in Strasbourg and VDs, and Hermione had spent a deliriously happy weekend at Fré de Nord and Magoli, which at six stories tall was the biggest bookshop in the world. About a quarter of the selection here was clearly geared toward potential student customers, but Hermione had heard that school textbooks were generally acquired by Owl Order or in London, and if budding arithmeticers purchased any non-required material, they must not have done it at Gripping a Hand, because there were only four books on arithmetic, one of which was stuffed through the margins with small, cramped notes. And that was not to say that there were not odd sights and potential treasures, at least for other people. There was a yellowing copy of Home Life and Social Habits of British Muggles, the first of its subject that Hermione had seen in Britain, and an all-new worst of Quidditch Illustrated, compiled and illicitly published by the editors of Quidditch Pro Quo. Still, though, there was nothing that quite caught her fancy, and Hermione purchased a ratty, dog-eared copy of Creation Myths of the European Wizard, mostly because she didn't want to break a twelve-year record of never leaving a bookshop without having acquired a book. When they returned to Madame Puddyfoot's for an early lunch, the two wizards from before were still there, and they had company at their table— a scarred witch, a couple of hags, and even a vampire with baggy bloodshot eyes. All except for the witch had a pipe in one hand, and occasionally a biscuit or shot of fire whiskey in the other. When Madame Puddyfoot noticed Hermione's attention, she smiled and waved it off. "'Don't you worry about that. Down the smoke section, see?' she said. And with that hint, Hermione noticed how the pipe smoke never quite drifted very far before it twisted around." as if the group were contained within an invisible box. They each ordered a half-sandwich for lunch, cheese and tomato for Hermione, and corned beef and pickle for Fleur, and a medler tart to split, which was sweet and a little sharp, something like dates with a bit of lemon. As they ate, they said little. 
Instead, they watched the pipe smoking on the other side of the tea shop, which had progressed from smoke rings to a series of increasingly extravagant shapes, sheep, houses, and eventually a dragon set faux fire to it all. By the time that Hermione and Fleur left, the smokers were playing knots and crosses by blowing shapes into a smoky hash mark. After lunch, Hermione and Fleur went to the post office to find an owl who could handle cross-channel flights. Fleur must have noticed that Hermione still had something in her bag besides the book, but said nothing of it. They returned to Hogwarts around the time that lunch was ending and split near the Black Lake, Fleur going back to her room to prepare for her upcoming arithmetic class and Hermione heading to the castle. Along the way, she encountered Ginny, who had ducked out of lunch early to avoid the rush and take a more leisurely route to class. "'Hermione, where have you been?' she said as soon as Hermione was in her sight. "'Draco said he was skipping out on meals now.' Uh, "'Mostly Madame Puddyfoot's,' Hermione said, and Ginny must have been familiar with its quality, because she smiled at that. "'They also have an all-right bookshop, though it's nothing compared to the Hogwarts library. Fleur wanted to look at Honeydukes, so I got some sweets there.' "'I thought you didn't eat edible chocolate,' Ginny said with a wry smile. Bittersweet chocolate was perfectly edible, but Hermione knew it required a refined palate to appreciate, so she let the comment slide. "'It isn't for me. I got some things for my sister Miranda and a chocolate rose for Fleur.' Ginny's eyebrows rose, and Hermione, suddenly worried, sallied forth. "'You don't think there's something wrong with it, do you? I don't know what a chocolate rose would mean. Come to think of it, or maybe a brown rose? I really ought to have checked beforehand. I just thought, a flower for Fleur. It's a pun in French.' I suppose it doesn't work nearly so well in English, and fleur pour fleur, see? Jenny laughed a little, which seemed to be a good sign, and nodded. I think it's fine, she said, still smirking. Are you sure? It's, how do you say perfect in French? Perfect? Isn't that a dessert? A perfect dessert, Hermione said, as long as it wasn't too sweet, anyway. Soon, Jenny had to leave for ghoul studies, but before she departed, Jenny said, Skip the Great Hall if you want, but... We're still going to see you at Portrait Club on Saturday, right? Of course, Hermione assured her. And then Ginny was down the hall and around the corner in no time at all. Wednesdays were blessedly free for Hermione, so she had a few hours free until dinner, time enough to explore the library a little more and read whatever caught her fancy. Later that night, Hermione handed the chocolate rose to Fleur, whose face lit with the barest tint of surprise, then relaxed into an amused smile. She had clearly gotten the wordplay. By the time that Saturday rolled up, Hermione had decided that an additional benefit of going down to Hogsmeade for breakfast, lunch, and dinner was that she didn't have to deal with anybody's culinary bewitchments. Between that and the reduction in company, her meals had been made a good deal less exciting, but Hermione wasn't about to complain. The quantity might be smaller, but the quality remained top-notch, and as long as Hermione was looking on the bright side, there was something to be said for three daily walks down a slope and back again. Meeting with Riddle had been a good decision if for no other reason than that Hermione could attend Portrait Club again without the gnawing worry that he would show up to ambush her. However much she had lost by bowing to his desire to meet with her, she had won something too, a little bit of freedom to enjoy herself without being afraid. When she showed up, anyway, there was so much to work on, and it seemed foolish for her to take a break when there were essays to write, books to read, notes to take, and even a magical tournament to prepare for, to say nothing of an extracurricular and challenging magical discipline to learn. Hermione tried to make it easier on herself by framing Portrait Club as a way to develop better relations with the Durmstrang champion. She had plenty of relaxed interactions with Fleur, and probably, for the sake of fostering unity, ought to do the same with Victor. Though Hermione could also admit from time to time that this was really just an excuse to let her hair down, as it were. 
Besides, if she didn't take some time off every now and then, Hermione would probably get an earful about self-care from Fleur and her other friends. Victor usually sat beside Hermione whenever she visited Portrait Club, probably because they had hit it off well, or because they were fellow champions, or maybe even because she was a visitor to Hogsmeade like he was. There were a handful of others from Bobatol and Durmstrang now and then, but not many. Probably Victor didn't know any of the other Bobatol students, and for all Hermione knew he wasn't friends with any of the other Durmstrangers in attendance besides Dimitri. It was inevitable when put that way. And Dimitri, bless him, hardly spoke up whenever Victor and Hermione were talking. He didn't really seem the subdued type, so it must have just been politeness and an unwillingness to interrupt them, or maybe he was too drunk. The show for that night was not quite the disappointment, but it proceeded with difficulty, and the four portraits required more prodding than Thurkel and Mulciber had needed. By the time it ended, the air had been filled with copious and inventive insults, but the argument had started slowly, in fits and starts, and one of the portraits had refused to get dragged into it at all. Perhaps it was inevitable, Hermione thought, since there had been plenty of time in the years before for Portrait Club to find and repeatedly use the best candidates. Afterward, Hermione milled about the room, visiting first with Victor and Dimitri, then Ginny and Luna, then a couple of Ravenclaws she'd never met before, orbiting Fred and George and the hag they were talking with, but only approaching when George waved her over. On Fred's right was a hag, probably a fifth or sixth year, and a fellow Slytherin, if the green gloves were any indication. Her face bore the lines of premature wrinkles, shallow channels that would, in years to come, be carved into deep canals, and her hair was already graying in thin streaks, a strange picture of senescence and youth. Hags got old quickly, but what they lacked in youth they made up for in longevity, provided that they kept a properly nourishing diet, of course. Because she wore something akin to bulky platform shoes, in order to elevate her feet as they began to curl and twist backward, the hag looked taller than she really was. "'I'm sorry for the poor show,' George said, "'but we have something big in the works, you can be sure of that.' "'Lyra here is head historian for the Slitherdor project,' he said, gesturing to the hag, and Hermione tried not to flinch as Lyra, smiling without a hint of self-consciousness, displayed a set of flesh-shearing carnassials and bone-crushing bicuspids. If Hermione seemed unsettled, the others drew no attention to it. "'Slitherdor?' Hermione said. "'Like Slytherin Gryffindor?' "'Short of,' said Lyra. "'But more Slitherdor, as in Slytherin Albus Dumbledore.' Lyra frowned briefly. "'It still sounds a little funny to me, but we talked about it for a little and decided that Slytherin was also an adjective, as in, that wasn't very Slytherin biscuits of you.' "'Slytherin biscuits?' Hermione asked. But the others only chuckled. "'The title is a work in progress, I admit,' Lyra continued, still smiling disconcertingly. Hermione waited, but nobody spoke up to explain Slytherin biscuits, so she wrote it off as a Hogwarts thing and refocused. "'But I thought that he was a Gryffindor.' "'He was, he was,' Lyra assured her. "'But portraits, you see, they're not like ghosts, are they? "'My grand's portrait acts like her because it knows how to act. "'It has to be given that information, and yes, these days portraitists mix their paint with the subject's name, "'and that makes it a lot easier, but originally you'd sit down and just talk with them, "'literally teaching them how to be you.' "'All right, I'm following. "'If you can teach a portrait to act like you, then you can teach a portrait to act like anybody.' including people who don't exist. The others nodded enthusiastically. George is the one who caught on to that, said the Weasley she thought was George. So we thought, he continued, if we're running out of portraits, why not make something that's perfect for the job and custom-tailored to give a good show? And what we decided, said the other Weasley, 
was to explore a question. What if Albus Dumbledore had been sorted into Slytherin? I don't know how it looks from the outside, to somebody who came from another school, but sorting can have a big impact, Lyra said. That's your friend group, your class schedule, your socialization. After he defeated Grindelwald, Dumbledore probably could have become minister if he wanted. There were all sorts of people who were hoping for him to go for the position, but he didn't take it. But what if, what if, said possibly George, and then in unison with his brother, Albus Dumbledore was a Slytherin. Of course, he might not have fought Grindelwald in the first place, Lyra added. That's why the biggest part of this project is research. We've checked out just about every biography there is to find of the man, so that we can make it perfect. We won't be done until next year, George said. But we'll see if you can get an invitation anyhow, if you want. Thank you, Hermione said, and she actually considered the idea a little. It would be nice to come back, actually return to Hogwarts, coming from Bobbiton, just to rub it in Riddle's face a little. But when she thought about it that way, it did seem a little foolhardy, a little like putting her head between a lion's jaws just to taunt him about not being able to eat her the first time. I don't know what things will look like next year, and of course there are the logistical problems, securing a port key and permission and so on, but this is really a fascinating idea. If I don't get to see it, then I would very much like to hear about how the show went, and maybe get a transcript. Lyra assured her that they would get a quill to take dictation and owl over a transcript the very next day after the show, and then Hermione extricated herself from the conversation, claiming that she had a lot of work still to do. It wasn't untrue, and in particular she was having difficulties with occlumency. Dimitri and Victor were just leaving at that point, and she followed them out into the corridor. But they must have been moving more quickly than she thought, because when she turned a corner she was sure they had taken. There was neither hide nor hair to be seen of them. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.